Uh, there will also be no Awana Club this week. That's one of the things that is postponed. Uh, it'll also, it's also, there's no club on the 25th due to the Halifax Parade. Um, there are some shoeboxes sitting out in the foyer as well. Um, what a neat way to minister to people. We have a short video about the shoeboxes, and uh, we'll go from there. the gift boxes with such excitement. You see it on their faces, on their smile, in their eyes. Some of them, is the very first time that they ever received a gift in their lives. We always include about a 10 minute gospel presentation in each event. Jesus loves you. That's what Operation Christmas Child is all about, is to reach children of the world with God's love. And we do that through a simple gift. They feel like somebody Love me. There's no greater joy than knowing we're getting to be a part of the Great Commission together. Volunteers across the nation love to spread the word about Shoebox Gifts. There's no way that you could do this without volunteers. They're incredible. The energy that they have, the excitement that they have. I do this because I know it makes a difference in a child's life. You want to make sure that the boxes that we send are something that these kids are going to remember forever. Our volunteers are just incredible people that love the ministry of Operation Christmas Child. This is the Good Samaritan work that the Lord is looking for people to do. When we pray, God takes your gift and he begins to navigate it around the world and it ends up in the hands of a child. God begins to answer those prayers. After a child receives a gift box, the child is invited to go through the greatest journey. They know the story of God, and they can tell others by using the books. In the hands of the local pastors, these boxes can be used as a tool to touch a whole community. The Great Commission, we're to go into all the world to preach the gospel, to make disciples of all nations, to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Evangelism, discipleship, and multiplication, that's what we do. With the sound so full, it cracks the It never ceases to amaze me how a simple box can change the world for a child. You know, every shoe box is different. I don't think I've ever seen two shoe boxes uh, alike. They're like snowflakes. But one thing that's common with, with all the gifts, and that's prayer. We, you see, we ask people to pray. Pray for the child that's going to get your box. Can you imagine? Millions of millions of people praying for children this year. So thank you. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your support. We never have enough boxes. We always need more. So please continue to help and continue to pray. God bless. Thank you. What a neat opportunity that we could have to really bless people. Um, there are plenty of shoe boxes out there that are left. I encourage you to take one of those home or two or three. Um, home with you, and, and there's instructions in there as far as what to put in, what not to put in, how much money you need to uh, include as far as shipping goes and stuff like that. 
Um, let's open our service to the word of prayer this morning. Gracious God, we are so thankful um, for how much you love us. We're thankful for opportunities um, like what Samaritan's Purse has given us um, to be able to minister to people all over the world, to children all over the world. Uh, Father, in giving these gifts that in turn are pointing them to you. Um, Father, it's not about the toothbrush or the toothpaste. It's, it's about the gospel. It's about their soul. And uh, Lord, I pray that each and every shoebox that is sent out from Word of Life Chapel may reach into the souls and, and uh, really, really point these children to you. Um, Father, may, may these shoeboxes be a path um, that points the children to the way, the truth, and the life, um, that points them to Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing together? Come set your rule and reign in our hearts again. Increase in us, we pray. Unveil why we're made. Come set our hearts ablaze with hope, like wildfire in our very souls. Holy Spirit, come invade us now. We are your church. We need your power in us. We seek your kingdom first. We hunger and we thirst. We refuse to waste our lives for your our joy and prize. To see the captive hearts. Build your kingdom 
even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your perfect love is casting out fear. storms of this life I won't turn back I know you are near I will fear no evil for my God is with me if my God is with me whom then shall I fear whom then shall I fear? Oh no, never let go and through the calm and through the storm. Oh no, never let go. Every high and every low. Oh no, never let go, Lord. You never let go of me. And I can see a light. those around you in Jesus' name.
Good morning, everyone. Uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes I get thoughts that come to me. I don't know if they're from me or if God sends them to me or, or how they, you know, where they come from. And so I'm a little bit skeptical. But this past week, I had no doubt. These words to a, a song that's familiar to many of you from the 60s came to me like a bolt out of the blue. I was at work when it happened. And I was returning to my workstation, and these words hit me as I was walking down the hall. And I quick grabbed a pen and a piece of paper. Instead of working, I started writing. Now, truth be told, it took several rewrites to get these to the point where I thought they were satisfactory. But nonetheless, I know where they came from. I have no doubt. Because when I come up with something like this, I know it's not of my own accord. It has to be from the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Excuse me. So hopefully, I can remember this tune properly in a cappella. And I'm hoping that these words to the song Yesterday by the Beatles will be ministering to you as well. Yesterday, pain and darkness were my destiny. Now I know I'll live eternally, cause Jesus died to set me free. Suddenly, I'm not the prisoner that I used to be. My chains have fallen off of me, oh saving grace came suddenly why he loved me so i don't know he bore my sin now by trusting him my soul belongs to him yesterday i was just a person lost in sin but Jesus saved me from that sin. Oh, I believe in loving him. Why he died for me, don't you see? He never sinned. I'm the one who sinned. Now praise God, I belong to him. Yesterday I was blind, but now I see, cause saving grace has come to me. Oh, I believe he set me free. Steve. I have a couple of prayer requests that I like to uh, mention, a couple of things that we need to highlight. Um, this is a busy week for uh, some in our church who are expecting to um, go through some surgeries. Uh, I'll start at the beginning of the list, Bonnie Bechtel. Uh, she's going to be having a knee replacement this Tuesday, a knee replacement this Tuesday. Um, Ruth Bush, 
um, uh, wife of Bruce, a uh, missionary that we support. Um, she's going to be having uh, surgery on Thursday. So keep Ruth in prayer, as well as John Good. Uh, John's having surgery tomorrow, gallbladder surgery. And then on Friday, Dorothea Lebo is having a knee replacement. Um, so those four folks uh, we need to keep before the Lord uh, this week. So it's a busy week for them, and I hope that uh, we could all pray for uh, these folks as they will be expecting to go uh, through surgery. So, Father, now as we pause before you, we are thankful that, Father, you are a great and wonderful God. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you, Father, that you have saved us from our sins. Lord, you have forgiven us uh, because of the blood of Jesus. Father, you've given us life eternal. Father, you have given us an abundant life. You've given us a joyful life, a life, Lord, that is filled with peace and rest and comfort. For Jesus said, I give you what the world is not able to give. And so through, Father, your Son, we have received so much. The salvation which is rich and full and free. Father, we thank you, too, for this church. We thank you, too, Lord, that you have enabled us and allowed us to come here once again. Father, this is your day, a day that has been set aside, set apart, so that we might come to worship, that we might come to praise you, uh, to thank you. Father, you are an awesome God. Father, you're worthy of our praise, you're worthy of our adoration, and we have come, Lord, to see you in all of your greatness and your fullness. We do lift up before you these folks this morning, Lord, that we've just mentioned, uh, these who will be uh, going through surgery. Father, we commit each to you, and we ask, Lord, that all goes extremely well, goes above and beyond what we might ask or think. We pray that you might calm nerves, that you might quiet hearts. Uh, for, Father, oftentimes anxiety is very real and very present in situations such as these. But I pray that each might rest in you and find that peace that transcends our understanding. Again, Father, to be able to come before you today is a great privilege. We thank you that you have allowed us to come before the throne of grace and bear the burdens of one another. Father, you're a great God. You're a God, Lord, who has loved us more than we will ever know. A God, Lord, who has extended grace and mercy into our lives. And Father, I thank you, too, this morning for your word. Father, we're going to be looking at this little book of Jude and how that we as believers need to stand firm on those things we believe. 
And so I pray for great wisdom from above. And that, Father, you, by your Spirit, you might have free course and be glorified. And you might, Lord, work in our hearts to teach us, to inform us, to create in us a courage to stand. Again, Father, we thank you for this good time that you've given us. You are a great and awesome God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Leonard's going to come and lead us in hymn number two, uh, Almighty Father, Strong to Save. And after the second hymn, uh, all of you folks at Junior Church, uh, you're dismissed to go downstairs. Almighty Father, strong to save, whose arm hath bound the restless wave, who bids the mighty ocean deep his own appointed time to keep. Oh, hear us when we cry to thee for those in perils all. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, but now I see. Hymn number 288. 288. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we sing this, and as the pastor announced, those in the junior church can be dismissed. 288. <laughs>
We have in our church uh, the Articles of Faith and Constitution, and in those Articles of Faith and Constitution we list out things we believe and how the church ought to function. All of those things are included. Article 10 under doctrine states this, the doctrinal basis shall remain intact without right of amendment, believing that the faith was delivered to the saints once and for all. Let me read that again. The doctrinal basis of this church, Word of Life Chapel, that statement of faith, shall remain intact without right of amendment, believing that the faith, the scriptures, this embodiment of truth was delivered to the saints once and for all. Jude 3. That's the key verse in the book of Jude. And we're going to look at Jude this morning. But isn't it interesting that the statement of faith that has been formulated by the founding fathers of Word of Life Chapel have stated in this article that it cannot be changed, believing that God's Word does not change. Some people would state 
it doesn't really matter what you believe. Whoa. <laughs> Wait just a minute. That doesn't come into this church. We believe in the Word of God. We believe that it really does matter what we believe. That doctrine, that teaching, that scripture is of utmost importance. And we dare not change it or amend it or edit it or delete it. God's word is settled in heaven forever. And so when we come to this little book called Jude, just before the book of Revelation, Jude discovers, after he starts writing this little book, because his thought was not to write about the heresy and destructive things that were creeping into the church. He wanted to write about the salvation that we all enjoy. But all of a sudden, his whole thought process changes. And he decides he must write to this church to warn his readers about those who are perverting and changing the truth of Scripture. And he calls upon the church, Christians, believers, to defend what they believe. It's been a while since I've shared with you my testimony. Some of you may have never heard it. Some of you are wondering why I'm standing here before you this morning. How did I get here? Well, I want to share it this my story with you this morning and, um, because it relates to the Word of God. God has instilled in me a love and a passion for His Word. I enjoy, even after 30 plus years, walking into my office on a Monday morning and starting to prepare another sermon for Sunday. God has given me a deep love and passion for the Scriptures. And it wasn't always that way. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. It was not always that way. Okay. <laughs> oh, isn't that cute? You know, I graduated from Millersburg in 1968. And uh, my wife and I came all the way through the school system. I went to Harrisburg Area Community College. I got my associate in science and engineering. I went to work for Pennsylvania Department of Transportation. Ted Kiter and I worked side by side for many years. I was with Brooke Morrison this week, and um, Brooke was sharing with me his story, how he got to CEF, and I was sharing my story, how I got here. And uh, I was talking about the game of tennis, and he said, uh, did you play tennis in high school? No, we didn't have tennis in Millersburg High School, you know, back at that time. But at some point in my life, I picked up a tennis racket, and I loved the game. I really enjoyed the game of tennis. And I, I played it, and, and anything I set my heart at, I try to do my best, whether it's fishing or preaching or tennis. 
At this point in my life, it was tennis. And I picked up a racket, and I lived and breathed the game, which wasn't a good thing. Tennis became my life. It became my priority. It became more important to me than anything else in the world at that time. And I have to admit, you know, when you set your heart at something, you give everything to it, you get pretty good at it. But to the, to the neglect of my family, the Lord, and everything else, I got up in the morning and I, all I could think about is tennis. I played in the, up at the Millersburg courts and I played down in Harrisburg with some of my uh, Penn Dot buddies. And um, at lunch, I would run up Cameron Street and do the whole big circle thing, you know, getting in shape and lift the weights and do all those things that you need to do. And then there was this guy I worked with, Amar Bajandas, and Ted, of course, this little Indian, was only about this big. And he and I started to enter tournaments down in Harrisburg. We never did very well. We, uh, but it was fun, you know, it was fun. And we got some experience, and then I decided to, play a couple single tournaments. I entered into the Lower Paxton Open down in Lingolstown. And I won on Monday, I won on Tuesday, I won on Thursday, uh, let's see, what's the days? Of the <laughs> I won on Monday, I won on Tuesday, I won on Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday I came to the finals. I made it all the way to the finals in the Lower Paxton Open. And I was beaten which was okay. I wasn't discouraged at all. It was like 6364. I still have the Sentinel Ar or the Harrisburg paper article. I still know the name of the guy that beat me, but that was okay. Because I was encouraged. I made it all the way to the finals in this Harrisburg tournament. And it encouraged me so much that I was determined that next year, that we're in the 70s, next year I was going to win. I had no doubts in my mind. That was my tournament. I ran harder. I lifted more weights. I prepared for a whole year for that tennis tournament the following year. And finally, the week came. And I went on Monday and I went on Tuesday. And I was blown away on Wednesday. I was beaten worse than I've ever been beaten in my life. It was like, why did I even walk on this court? What am I doing here? You've often heard it said that Lord, the Lord sometimes has to beat you up alongside the head with a two-by-four. This was my moment. This was my moment. God beat me up alongside the head and said, your life is so out of whack. What are you doing? Now, I was a Christian. I've been a Christian as long as I can remember. But even as Christians, sometimes our priorities are so wrong. Things creep into our lives that just take over. And it didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen in a week. But over a period of time, God took away from me the passion and the love I had for the game. 
and transferred it to the Bible. I fell in love with this book as much as I love tennis, as much as I gave my heart to tennis. All of a sudden, now it's like I can't get enough of this book. It's like every morning I wake up and think about the Bible. I would set my alarm early to get up and memorize and study. And you know, God is an interesting God. The work I did in the soils department in the winter, they would send in soil samples from outside and we would test them in the lab. When the ground is frozen, you can't dig up and send in samples. Our winters were slack and it was a very light and so I didn't have a whole lot to do through the winter and so um, I would go back in my little area and I would sit on this chair and I would read a commentary and the Lord put a bookstore right down Cameron Street that I could walk to if I was I was finished with second Peter's commentary I'd go down the bookstore and I'd buy Ezekiel I'd finish easy. I know, I shouldn't be doing this at work time, but. <laughs> but, you know, this is just what, this was my winter. All winter long, I just read and read and read and studied and studied and studied. I couldn't get enough. I couldn't get enough. Until God said, you've done enough on your own now. It's time to go to sit under the professional's at Bible college and seminary. And I can remember the first day my wife and I, we went to a class at LBC. It was one of those days you just go and, you know, you sit under a class and they go through all the orientation, those things. And I, I was sitting under this one professor and he was teaching, I think, the book of Titus. And I was sitting there thinking, oh my word. You mean I can just do this in class day after day and just saturate myself with the word of God. For six years, I studied God's Word. Three years at LBC, three years in seminary. And to make a long story shorter, <laughs> I came here in 1985 as the assistant pastor. I still love to this day the Word of God. It has meant so much to me over all of these years. And I, as I said, even today, I go into my office on Monday morning and to open the pages and, you know, Brooks Solberg, he was the, one of the pastors out at David's church. And I remember when I saw him, he had a heart attack one day and I went to see him at the hospital. And he said to me as a pastor, a fellow pastor, he said, Think about this for a minute. You and I, we're being paid for what we love to do. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't get any better than that, does it? To be paid to study the word of God in preparation to teach it or to preach it. So here's Jude. And Jude is saying to this church, there are some out there that are perverting. There are some out there that are changing what God has already written. What do we do about that? 
as a Christian who loves the Word of God, who stand on the Word of God, we who know this book doesn't change. What do we as Christians, what do we as a church do when, when we hear of those who are perverting it, changing the gospel? Well, let's see what Jude has to say. Jude's message is this, God has spoken. God has spoken, and we must take a hard stand for the truth of what is written in the Word of God. And the key verse, as I said, is in verse 3. It's the verse in which this doctrinal, or this uh, statement in the Articles of Faith is based upon. Look at Jude chapter, not chapter, there is only one chapter, but look at Jude 3. It says this, Dear friends, Although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation which we share. You see, he wasn't planning on saying all that he's going to say. He wanted to write about this wonderful salvation that they share. But I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once and all entrusted or delivered to God's holy people this is the purpose of this little book this is the purpose of why jude writes i have entrusted you god said i have entrusted the saints god's people with this faith he writes to friends um, uh, he speaks of these friends in verse one as being called and loved and kept um, for jesus christ but then rather than writing about the wonderful salvation which he shares with the readers, which was his original intent, he says, I am compelled to write to you, to urge you to contend for the faith. This is not your faith that you put in Jesus. This is the faith. This is this body of information that it was believed by the early church. This is the gospel. This is the message of salvation. This is the, the, the uh, body of objective truth. The word of God that has been trusted to the saints, to God's holy people. This truth has finality and is not subject to change. We dare not change what God has written. Back in the book of Revelation, uh, just a couple pages back. Let me read to you in the very last chapter of Revelation what God says here about this book, Revelation, but certainly applies to all of Scripture. In Revelation chapter 22 and verse 18, we read, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll. Now again, he's the context, of course, is this book of Revelation. But it certainly can be applied to all of Scripture. The entire Word of God. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll that if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described 
in this scroll. God's word is final. God's word is not to be changed. We are not to add to it. We are not to take away from it. God has written what is before us. And this book is settled in heaven. But false teachers were slipping into this church, the early church. They were slipping into the church and changing the truth, changing this faith, changing this doctrine, the apostles' teachings. So what do we do? What did Jude say the people should do? He says, contend. Contend. Which is a word that elsewhere is translated wrestling. In other words, an up-close and personal battle. We're to fight for truth. We're to fight for this body of truth. The spoken word that was delivered once and for all. It's not open to discussion. God has written. And we simply believe. Article 10, doctrine. The doctrinal basis of this church, that statement of faith, 13 statements in our articles of faith, shall remain intact without right of amendment believing that this faith, this scripture, this body of truth was delivered to the saints once for all. You know, as I was reading through this, my wife says I get too emotional in my old age. I don't know what it is. I, I, I guess I do. I guess, I don't know if that's old age or what it is, but, you know, you get kind of teary-eyed when you... I guess that is age, maybe. I don't know. But I was thinking about some of the men, the founding fathers who wrote this. And you know their names. Some are with the Lord now, probably most of them. I could only imagine sitting around that table, sitting around that table, hearing the discussion at the board meeting where these deacons decided so strongly that we do not want this church to change its doctrine, that we will put in writing an article that states that because it was delivered once for all, it cannot be amended. The Board of Deacons can amend anything if they have a unanimous consent, except this, except the statement of faith, which is intact and cannot be amended. I was thinking through these men sitting at the table, penning these words that today we still abide by. God's word is worth fighting for. Contend for this faith, this body of truth. Don't allow it to change. The problem was that false teachers were invading this church. False teachers were, were slipping in. You know, Jude is not the first one to mention all of this, was he? I mean, Jesus mentioned it. Paul mentioned it. Peter mentioned it. Jude mentioned it. So many warnings came from Jesus and Paul and Peter. And now Jude, look at verse 4. 
for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago. They have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. And it's not all they do. They deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Here were these false teachers who were creeping into the church Look good on the outside, but inside ungodliness. And one of the things they denied was the deity of Christ. They denied, in verse 4, that Jesus Christ was the sovereign, almighty Lord and God. J. Vernon McGee said the acid test of any religion, any organization, is who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And if the answer is not, Jesus is the almighty God. That he is God in flesh. He is the son of God who came to earth. If they deny the deity of Christ, it is a false religion. For the Bible teaches from cover to cover that Jesus Christ is God in flesh. Now, in your bulletin, uh, there's a sermon outline. And um, I know all of you are, uh, have it on your lap and you're filling the blanks. No, I'm just kidding. I know not everybody uses this. Um, but anyway, there it is. But I ask that you turn to it for a moment, not for the front page, but the back page. Look at the back page. Look at the back page. And I've written on here 10 things, lines of evidence that affirm the deity of Christ. Lines of evidence that affirm the deity of Christ. We believe in this church that Jesus Christ is God, equal with God. Totally man, but totally God. <laughs> Explain that one, right? 100% God and 100% man. No, you can't always explain these things. There's some mysteries that we don't all understand. But lines of evidence. I want you to have this in front of you so that you can see for yourself the scripture and by the way this is certainly not exhaustive i'm sure and i know there are many many other places where you can find in the word of god that jesus christ is god in flesh but just a couple of these just a couple of these um, number one the old testament predicted that the messiah would be the mighty god you remember this is the christmas uh passage in Isaiah 9, 6, where it says uh, he, the Messiah is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. That's Jesus, the mighty God. Number two, Jesus himself claimed a heavenly preexistence. In John chapter 16, uh, Jesus said, I came from the father and I'm going back to the father. He claimed a preexistence before Bethlehem. Number three, Jesus assumed divine authority over the forgiveness of sins. This is the story of the paralytic, where Jesus not only healed him physically, but healed him spiritually. He said, your sins are forgiven. Imagine someone making that claim. Well, Jesus did. 
And only God is able to forgive sins. Number four, Jesus exercised, exercised divine authority over death. This is the story of Jairus' daughter. When he said to the little girl, I say to you, get up. And Jesus brings her back to life. Number five, Jesus claimed the ability to answer prayer. He said, ask me and I will do it. Uh, number <coughs> six, uh, Jesus called himself the Son of Man. You go back to Daniel, and back there it refers to the Son of Man, and it refers to someone who is enthroned as the great ruler over all the earth. And Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Number seven, he calls himself the Son of God. Uh, the Jews knew that, didn't they? And the Jews knew exactly what Jesus was saying when he said that, because they wanted to put him to death. You're claiming to be the Son of God, the God himself? Yeah, that's what Jesus said. Number eight, uh, he called himself the I Am, which is a name that refers to Yahweh. Back in the Old Testament, Jesus himself said in John 8, before Abraham was, I am, calling himself the Yahweh of the Old Testament. He claimed unity, verse 9, with the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the list goes on. I mean, the list goes on and on. Verses that, that, uh, that uh, indicate the deity of Jesus Christ himself. So hang on to that sheet. Um, as I said, the acid test is, uh, who is Jesus? Who is he? Well, that's the problem. That's the problem. These uh, men were creeping into the church. They slipped into the church. Uh, God gives um, three illustrations there in verses 5 uh, through 7 on judgment uh, to Israel, to the angels, to Sodom and Gomorrah, and says, just as I judge them, I'm going to judge all those who teach false doctrine. And then we come to the prescription. The prescription. And I see the prescription of how we defend our faith in verse 20. He says, but you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Spirit. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Remember what faith means in this context. Faith is God's revelation that has been handed down by the apostles, embodied in the teachings of Jesus, and now recorded in the scriptures. That book you have in your lap, that's not just any other book. That is a unique book. That's why it's called a holy book. Bible, holy meaning set apart, unique, nothing like it in the world. This faith is a most holy faith. The Bible says we should study to show ourselves approved unto God. You see, there's no shortcuts to spiritual growth. If we're going to know false doctrine, we need to know the truth. Someone said to me years ago, and I don't know if it's even true, but I'll share it with you. Uh, those who um, are experts in counterfeit money, 
one of the things they need to know, it sounds right, is the real thing. How do you know a counterfeit $20 bill if you don't know the real $20 bill? So you need to know the real bill to see and recognize the false counterfeit bill. Well, I apply that to Scripture. How do we know what's not true um, if we don't know what is true? So we build ourselves up in this faith. We study this book. We, we memorize this book. We meditate upon this book. We read this book. We saturate ourselves in the Word of God in order for us to know falsehood. But then also pray in the Spirit. We build ourselves up in this most, most holy faith, but we also pray in the Spirit. The NIV Study Bible says, according to the Spirit's promptings and with the power of God's Spirit. You know, we're supposed to be led by God's Spirit. We're supposed to be directed by God's Spirit. We're supposed to be um, following the footsteps of the Spirit of God. And that includes prayer. We're to be prompted by God when we pray. Led by God when we pray. Praying under his direction, under the Spirit's influence. The Bible says we're to be filled with the Spirit of God, which means to be controlled by God's Spirit. So in our prayers, we're to be controlled by God's Spirit and be empowered by him. You know, we do live in interesting days, don't we? Today. These are interesting days that we live in. Interesting times. Jude says in verse 17, let me just read a couple more verses and then we'll be dismissed. He says, but dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you that in these last times there are going to be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. The coming of these godless men, the, the, these false teachers, should, shouldn't take us by surprise. It's been foretold by Jesus, by Paul, by Peter, now by Jude. It was predicted by the apostles. They continually would warn us of godless apostates who would creep into the church. And so what do we do? We're to stand for the faith. We're to stand and contend for the faith. We're not to sit idly by, to sit in our castles with our drawbridges shut tight. We've been called upon to defend our faith, to stand up for what is right and holy and good. The Bible calls us soldiers. The hymn writers sing, we sing of being soldiers in God's army. And as soldiers, for the truth of the word of God, we are content to contend for the faith that was once delivered to God's holy people. Father, we thank you for your word. It's a word, Lord, that we love, we enjoy, we study, meditate upon, it's a word, Lord, that guides us in life. It's a word that 
instructs and teaches. It's there for our correction, our rebuke. Lord, it's what we live by. It's your spoken word. And may this church, I pray, always hold fast to the word of life. So guide us and help us, Lord, to stand. In Jesus' name, amen. Hymn number 457, hymn number 457, lead on, O King Eternal, the day of march has come, henceforth in fields of conquest your tents shall be our home, through days of preparation your grace has made us strong, and now, O King Eternal, we lift our battle song. Let's stand together, we'll sing all three stanzas, and we'll be dismissed. Lead on, O King Eternal, the day of march has come. Henceforth in of conquest, tents shall be our home. Days of preparation, your grace has made And now, O our battle song. Lead on, O King Eternal, since fierce war shall cease. Holiness shall whisper, sweet amen of peace, for not with swords clashing nor roll of stir. With deeds of love, the heavenly kingdom comes. Lead on, O King. <coughs> we follow not with fears. This breaks like morning, where'er your face appears. Your cross is lifted o'er us, journey The crown awaits conquest, lead on, O God of might. Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray that we, Lord, might stand for its truth and obey its instructions. Father, we thank you for this little book of Jude and pray that we, Lord, might heed its warning and contend for and fight for the faith, this embodiment of truth, your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.